thanks. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Um, thank you, both of you. <laughs> it's good, good the two of you are with me already. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. Um, we have at Redemption Hill and our elders and our, our church have prayed for you um, from before this church had launched. And so it's exciting for me to be with you and gather with you and even to be able to open God's word with you this morning. Um, we are going to take some time out of Luke chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 13. That is where we're going to settle in verses 10 to 17 this morning. Um, this morning, we are going to spend some time um, reading this a story of Jesus' interaction with a woman who was bent over, and we'll see what had happened to her physically and spiritually. But the, really, today's text, is, is I was considering what to open up um, as we gathered with you today, is, is for those of you and for those of us who feel bent and broken, it's for those of us who feel the weight of, of whether it's sin, whether it's past experience, whether it's present circumstance, that there are weights spiritually and even physically that are weighing on you. Um, then this text is for you this morning. And, and we'll see in this how Jesus responds to the religious leaders of the time, how he responds to this woman and how they respond to Jesus. And in that, there's things that we can learn because all of us feel the weight of something. All of us are scarred by something. All of us, and many of us, have, have been scarred and hurt even by our experiences in the church. It could be silly things sometimes. Um, you know, I was, when I, we were first um, coming out to D.C. to plant, we worked with a sending church that's here in Northern Virginia and um, that was what we were working with and part of for the first year that we were out here is we were laying the groundwork for what would become Redemption Hill um, on the other side of that river. Um, I t- completely underestimated what a massive cultural barrier the Potomac River actually is in this area until somebody reminded me that there was a fairly significant war in our history and that was kind of the dividing line. Um, and so... So as we planted out of our sending church, I think we had two members come with us um, across that river. But in one of my first Sundays there, I showed up in, and I don't think I'm, I'm a slob in the way I dress, but I was asked to step in and serve communion. And as I stepped in to serve communion, I, had, um, I, I stepped in and helped the guys, the elders, and served the plates. And then after the service, had a very concerned older gentleman pull me aside and say that he had some issues with me that he needed to discuss that were weighing on his heart. I said, okay, this is my first Sunday. What could I possibly have done to be that offensive already? I mean, I know I have a knack for hitting relational landmines, but, but I've never even talked to you yet. Um, and so he pulled me aside, very concerned, because he wanted to tell me that it was offensive to God that I was not in a suit and tie as I served communion that Sunday. Offensive to God. <laughs> I tried to graciously respond to this concerned older brother, but these are the kinds of things that can happen in churches over something stupid, silly, as if God is evaluating the level of dress based on cultural norms that have been established. Now, some of you have been hurt and scarred by things that have gone on in churches. 
Some of you have been hurt badly by, by what people around you have done to you or said to you, what leaders have done. What, because they're in churches, there are wounded people that, that go on to cause great hurt. There's hypocrisy and, and people that cause great shame and, and do huge damage. And there can so quickly develop, even in our churches, a, a religious arrogance that gets cloaked in correctness. As people begin to turn, rather than being focused on, on, on being concerned about the healing and wholeness of broken people who are coming in and turning to the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, they begin to cloak with gospelish language their own promotion of their own emotional and social safety and their preferences. And proof text their preferences as if they become the truth. And so they go on to promote their own interests rather than the mission that they've been called to pursue. Which means that we can become more concerned to keep order and rules and regulate the minute detail of people's lives and practice, again, rather than seeing their healing and wholeness. So today's text is for those of us who are broken and bent. Today's text is also for those who are staunchly religious indignantly religious and need to hear Jesus' words. This is what we have in Luke 13. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. This is God's word. And so we see here that Jesus straightens what is bent. This stunning account of what happened with this woman. And, and so listen, not every physical malady, not every physical issue in, in Scripture is spiritual. I think that sometimes we can get that a little bit confused and fall off into some dangerous practice if we assume there's a demon behind every illness. Sometimes we just experience the physical brokenness of this world. Luke acknowledges that there are healings in Luke's gospel that are purely physical. There are other healings that are purely spiritual, where Jesus casts out demons. This one's a little different, because we're told that this is a, this has been, she has been bound by Satan. We are told that she has a disabling spirit that has, that has, taken, that has overcome her, and so this one is unique. Something different is going on here. And what it seems to be is that the woman's spiritual state, the reality of her spiritual life, is being shown in her physical stature and pain. 
And so she has been bent low through spiritual attack and through depression. And this and it's been accompanied by a real physical condition. A lot of commentators would say that this is a condition called spondylitis ankylopoietica, which is a fusion of the spinal bones where the spinal bones calcify together. This is something that, that some of you may even know people that, that still deal with this illness today. But can you imagine if we showed outwardly our spiritual state? What would you show today? For some of you, you might be like this woman, bent in half, feeling the weight crushing on your shoulders so that you wouldn't be able to even stand up. For some of you, it might be that you, you, would, you have guilt and shame within you that would, that would disfigure and twist your body, reflecting the, the disfiguration and twisting of your soul as you haven't been freed from the, that guilt and shame. For some of you, maybe it would, be, it, wouldn't, it would be that you would be blank, just a blank stare with nothing to hide, nothing to show because you haven't even engaged what's going on in your soul. Some of you might be fractured if we could see the spiritual reality, split into pieces and parts, unable to bring together a whole in your life. And some of you may be the walking dead, because even in our churches, even in this church, there are some of you who have no real spiritual life. What would it be? What would, it, what would show through you? Can you imagine if walking into this place we were able to see physically the spiritual state of each other? Now it may help us with greater compassion toward each other. And as we'll see in this text, it would also mean that some would be even more critical. But in this, what we see from Jesus and what happens for this woman is, is amazing because what Jesus does, is he starts by declaring her freedom. He says, he says you are, woman, you are freed from your disability. And so this is, he doesn't just say you're healed. He doesn't just straighten her up. He says you are freed from this. She is freed from the demonic oppression of Satan over her that's crushing her. She is freed from the physical bentness of her spine. And then he didn't just declare something and keep her at a distance, but we see that Jesus touched her that he laid his hands on her. And immediately, he made her straight. He lifted her head. He lifted her gaze and straightened out her spine. And this is a physical sign of a spiritual reality of the freedom that she was being given. And the response of the woman was what? What did she do? In verse 13, right in the middle, of the, of the passage, it says that immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She turned in worship. You see, Jesus didn't come for the religious elite. He didn't come for those who already think themselves righteous. We read that in Luke 5, that it's, it's, not the doc, it's, it's the sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. And he came to bring healing for those who needed to, to repent. And, and so we need to hear, some of you need to hear this morning, that if you have come here and you feel bent and broken, if you are in pain, if you have a drooping head and a weak stature, if you know that there are spiritual realities within you, that if they were to show outwardly, you would be ashamed and frightened for people to see what's going on, then this is good news for you today. Because through the cross, Jesus declares your freedom. 
if we turn to him, we'll be touched by the presence of God's Spirit. And God won't remain distant, but he'll come near to us and touch us and heal us, and Christ himself can lift your head. But in the middle of this beautiful story, in the middle of this beautiful narrative, I, you, you almost wish it would just stop there, right? In verse 13. This is, why not just end with, this, she's glorifying Jesus, but in verse 14, everything changes. The synagogue ruler in the synagogue responded in an amazing act of arrogance and cowardice, showing his own insecurity. Synagogues were set up in such a way that when we read the word ruler of the synagogue, this was a guy whose job it was to help lead the synagogue, to organize the services and, and t- do most of the teaching. Um, so, and then they would have elders of the synagogue that would help with the care of the people so, to come alongside and help that synagogue ruler. And so these are familiar structures to many of us. The synagogue ruler is somebody that we like what we would call a lead pastor. And this guy... Um, was supposed to be the one leading the people and understanding God's word and caring for the people. And, and his response, what we see in him, is, is, is that he became indignant. He was angry because Jesus' actions were outside of his understandings of Scripture. His actions were outside of this man's um, preferences on how things ought to be done. And so he, whilst God had simply commanded that, that a Sabbath be set aside, there were all kinds of systems and rules that came up around that. And so that, so that, um, so that when even th- simple things like they, they began to say that it was wrong to write something on the Sabbath, because to write something was an act of creation in creating words that had been written with ink on paper. So it was down to minutia of Sabbath regulations. And so this guy, this, uh, this synagogue ruler, shows really is probably a reflection of the rest of the leadership of this group. But in that, what we see in him is religious indignation. And today, what we are going to see in the time we have together is that, that his religious indignation is contrasted with Jesus' righteous indignation. And so in them, we can see the characteristics of religiosity and religious indignation. And in Jesus, we'll see the characteristics of righteous indignation. And this will be helpful for us. And so as we, as we look at this, what are the marks of religious indignation? Well, the first is that they have a created system of rules. Look at how the guy responds. He says he's indignant, he's angry. Why? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And so he turns, he doesn't confront Jesus directly. Do you notice that? He doesn't say to Jesus, hey, can we discuss what's happening here because it's outside of my understanding? Can we, can we, can we have a discussion or can we engage with each other about the reality of what I'm seeing? Instead, he turns to the people and turns to others and says, and, and goes on to do some doctrinal teaching to correct what they're seeing. And rather than confront it head on, is subversive in his way to do it, to remind everybody of the rules that they've set up. So he turns to the people and says, listen, there are, in spite of what you might have seen here, which all of you are very excited about, let's slow down a little bit. Because remember, I'm going to quote from Exodus that there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days then to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. How much healing do you think was happening on the rest of the days? I mean, we don't have an immediate indication in the text here, but 
the response of the people to what Jesus had done shows us that this was just as out of the ordinary for them as it would be for us. And yet the pride and the arrogance that comes through this one guy, this leader, shows that he is more in love with his systems of rules than he is with people. He's more concerned with protecting the rules and the fences that they've established, like layers to keep us from a cliff's edge. And so, and we can see this where it can become insidious within those who claim to be God's people and among those who are even in positions of leadership among God's people, that, that they'll be, end up being sin police, hovering over, wanting to remind people and identify, and identify, well, you're outside of the bounds of what we consider to be right, even when it's things that are not explicitly detailed in Scripture, chapter and verse. And so we set up all kinds of extra things and extra layers and extra, extra rules to follow. And this, this happened in the early church as well. Paul confronted it in multiple times, in multiple Gospels, but, but particularly in Colossians 2.20, we read this, that, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, if it's true that Jesus was raised from death to life and we are united with him, he says, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All referring to things that perish as they are used. Why do you submit according to human teachings? These things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So religious indignation is upset when the rules are violated. And there is truth, there is a reality of sin, and reality of rebellion against God, but God's word is sufficient to outline that reality for us. Let's not go beyond what it says. And so even as we do some self-assessment this morning, what extra biblical rules and preferences are you prone to place onto others? The second characteristic we see of religious indignation here is, is what I'll call doctrinal condescension. There's always a proof text to prove their point, not a willingness to concede other perspectives, and so people will hold their views over others. And so here, you can almost hear it in the, in the response of the synagogue ruler to say, say, listen, I'm not even going to turn toward Jesus, but hey, I'm going to quote Exodus 20, verse 9, and Jesus, did you hear that? I've got the verse that says you shouldn't have healed this woman. It says you're out of line, Jesus, because in Exodus 29, it says this. It says this doctrinal condescension over Jesus. And the problem is that this one in particular can look so good and sound so good when somebody has a proof text at the ready to defend themselves and and even though there's no context and there's a reality that without context biblically then all we have is pretext for a proof text. So people just rip verses out of context and say, this is what, this defends me. This proves that I am right. This proves that you are wrong. And this sounds so intellectual and so wise but it can be so destructive. Those of us that are in the Reformed world, and I'm, I mean, that's my team. I'm a Reformed guy, but we are terrible about this. We are the worst. And we respond this way. If, you re, I mean, if, you, if you're stuck in the like, strange cultural niche of the Reformed blogosphere that thinks it's very important and at the centerpiece of all of God's work in all of the world, even though it's really limited to like 
3% of the United States. We're terrible about this. Any good work that happens, anything that anyone celebrates, it's like a matter of, is it going to take 30 seconds or 30 hours for somebody to respond with the blog to say, yes, but. Yeah, that person seems to have good things happening. Yes, there seems to be good work and healing coming through this person's ministry or through this event that happened, but let me give you all the reasons that it's not quite right. They're just a little bit too far outside of this narrow stream, and so it must be gimmick. And so we have a way to contrast and condescend everything. I was hanging out with a guy one time, and and, um, some of these theological terms might mean nothing to you, and if so, praise God for it. I was hanging out with a guy one time, though, that, that I was just, we were, we were friends, I thought, and, um, and at one point he made the statement, he, he just looked at me and said, man, you know, I've heard that there are godly covenant theologians, but I've never met one. <laughs> and it's like, huh, I, I'm, I fall into that camp. <laughs> I'm a covenant theologian. And the guy's jaw dropped. He had no response for it. But why do we do that? We make broad statements like that and decide that our little niches, we can slap you know, the, the big theological words from dead white guys and say that makes it so that I am justified in what I believe and you are wrong and it undercuts the validity of God's work in your life and ministry. We can fall off on moral hobby horses that we make big stands on. And, and we do this on all sides where we can fall into legalism, where we have, we have strict rules that go well beyond the bounds of Scripture because God's word isn't sufficient for our morality. Or we can fall off on the side of license, which is just legalism, where we begin to express our freedoms as if they become the litmus test for whether somebody's actually a Christian. Because if they don't have the same freedoms that we do, clearly they don't understand God's word sufficiently. And in all of this, there's, there's this in, as we understand the reality that can happen of, of these created systems of rules and this doctrinal condescension, the third characteristic that develops then in religious indignation is pride and position. That's what you have from this synagogue ruler. Why does it tell us what his title is? Because undoubtedly, he's the kind of guy that would remind you quickly of what his title is. That's why he doesn't even turn to address Jesus. He turns to address the people. And here, what we see is that that any sign of power and authority can have a bad effect on somebody. The position that they hold can become their identity, and then they'll hold it over others, and and it'll be cloaked in this noble-sounding rhetoric of responsibility. But it misses that the entire New Testament and Jesus himself show us that position is just greater opportunity for service rather than authority. And this happens, I mean, we can see this again and again through Scripture. This isn't a new idea. In Numbers 16, there's this amazing story of what happened as, as the sons of Korah came and confronted Moses and Aaron. An amazing story. If, you, if you're familiar with Bible stories, you may know this one is a point where the sons of Korah get swallowed up by the earth eventually. Um, that's usually the, the thing, like if you read a children's Bible, that's the only thing you read. Which Why does a story like that make it into a children's Bible? Explaining to my six-year-old, yes, the ground swallowed these men up. I don't really know where to go with that. <laughs> where's, the, where's the Jesus gospel tie in a children's Bible? 
Um, but what we have here is stunning because what happens is that the sons of Korah, and they, they get together people around them, well-known men, it says in number 16, from the assembly, 250 chiefs of the congregation. They rise up against Moses and Aaron, and they assemble themselves together, and they accuse Moses and Aaron of saying, you have gone too far. Everyone in this congregation is holy. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly? And they come against him because the sons of Korah want Aaron's job, and they want the position that, that, they, that they're striving toward because they want his authority. And so in this rebellion against Aaron, Moses is the one that stands up and says to them, isn't it enough what God has given you? God separated the sons of Korah in particular from the congregation of Israel, brought them near to the tabernacle because they, were, they worked to serve and care for the people of Israel, to minister to them. And Moses says, isn't that enough that he's brought you near to him? And, and your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you, what, why are you also seeking the priesthood? He says, again, it's against the Lord that you and your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And so it, with religious indignation, there can be a pride and a seeking after position for the sake of power rather than for the sake of laying yourself down to serve. And it can be much more subtle than a rebellion like that. It could be something as simple as saying, I don't serve on Sundays. Sundays are my Sabbath. Now, this kind of self-righteousness exists outside the church as well, right? Our, our, whole, our entire culture has created systems of rules, things that are and are not culturally acceptable and have a religious indignation to protect them. Culturally, our, our nation has doctrinal condescension where we don't want to end up on the wrong side of history, which is a tremendously arrogant claim that assumes that we know where history is headed and assumes the correctness of the majority, which is simply indefensible historically. And if there's any place that understands pride in position, it is D.C. in the metro area. We have giant monuments to celebrate human power and position. And so this isn't just limited to the church, but the unfortunate reality is that it insidiously infects the church as well. We should expect it outside, but within? You know, we need to be careful about people that act this way and see this thing. We need to be careful. And some of you that have been burned by and, and bent low by things that have happened to you by those who claim the name of Christ, you need to hear that Jesus is the response that we need to see this morning. In him, we see a righteous indignation. And so the characteristics of righteous indignation, first, he exposes the religious hypocrites. That's what he says. He, he answered him. He, so Jesus does turn to the synagogue ruler and says to him, in the presence of the assembly, he says, you hypocrites. And he quotes other parts of rabbinical law. They're saying, listen, don't each of you go and untie your, doc, your, your ox or donkey and lead them to water on the Sabbath? You, you treat your animals well because you know that they need water and they won't get water without being untied, loosed from their bonds and led by you to a place where they can get a drink. So you do that to care for your animal and yet you want this woman to remain bound. You hypocrites. And so he exposes the hypocrisy of these leaders. He exposes the hypocrisy of the, of the religious. 
He calls, and, and the, because the religious call the darkness of religiosity light. He had confronted this just earlier in chapter 11, uh, saying, saying to the religious leaders, you load people with burdens that are hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so he's saying, when we get ourselves into a position where we impose our religious standards and preferences on other people, and yet we're unwilling to enter into and touch and bring healing and wholeness for them, then we are in the, in the very essence of what hypocrisy is. And righteous indignation will expose that hypocrisy. And listen, you may get away with that kind of burden laying your entire life, but in the end, you will stand before Christ and he will expose you. Then he defended God's child. Do you see this? Jesus came to her defense. She didn't need to defend herself. She didn't need to try to answer her, her accusers and the people that were angry about her healing. It was Jesus in verse 16 who said, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. He came to lay his life down that people would be saved. And he will defend those whom he has called. This woman is called a daughter. This is a close, affectionate term that Jesus is using, an intimacy and a softness we see. As he responds, exposing the, the hypocrites with righteous indignation, anger against what they are doing, and exposes the, the, the hypocrisy and idiocy of the religious teachers here and the inadequacy of their theology, the softness and tenderness he shows to this broken and bent woman is to say, she is a daughter of Abraham. He exposes the, the true nature of the, religi- of the spiritual reality underneath the saying Satan himself had bound her for 18 years and she has been loosed on the Sabbath day. And so it's Jesus' loving protection and care that we need to see in his righteous indignation. This is what righteous indignation shows. Is it'll, it'll show and it'll, it'll expose hypocrisy and defend God's children. Third, it'll, his adversaries, Jesus' adversaries, were put to shame. And that's what we read right here, that as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And this language that they were put to shame has an eschatological implication. It means that, that there are broader implications than just feeling bad about what they said in that moment. This is language biblically to say that there's something bigger that's happening, that that to be put to shame means that these people that were religiously indignant were laid bare. They were exposed before these people. And so this is the same kind of language that we see in Matthew 25, as Jesus says that at the end of time, at the end of judgment day, that there will be those on his left to whom Jesus says, depart from me, you, you cursed Depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will answer saying, Lord, listen to the indignance here. When did we see you hungry or thirsty? 
When did we see you a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? He will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal, into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In the end, Jesus' adversaries will be put to shame. And particularly, those who stand in their religiosity against those who are the broken in need of healing that Jesus will call daughters and sons. And so some of you today need, may need to repent of your religiosity, of your religious indignation. And there's hope for you too, that we know that if you're falling under conviction by God's word, that, that you can turn and repent and believe and you, and you will be saved. That, that maybe what has happened is that you've become bent and twisted by religion itself. And for all of us, as we respond to Jesus, Just a couple of points that we see here. The first is to rest in true Sabbath. And so we see the religious indignation of the leaders. We see the righteous indignation of Jesus. But then the response of the woman is so helpful for us. You understand that this is on a Sabbath day. She was healed. And in her healing, she finds greater Sabbath than the religious leaders ever could. So how beautiful that Jesus would do this on a Sabbath day. Today, Sunday, is the Christian Sabbath. It's the day that we set aside weekly to remember each week that Jesus was raised from the dead. We celebrate the resurrection every time we gather. We celebrate that in Jesus' life, he showed perfect righteousness, that he was perfectly holy, that that it wasn't contingent on man-made rules, and in fact, throughout his life and ministry, he contradicted the religiosity of the people at almost every point. But in his death, he conquered death for us. We know that, that, this, that the power of death stands and the law that stands over us and in our own sin. But Jesus took on the curse that we deserve and took on hell itself for us so that we could be freed. In his resurrection, he guarantees that we have the hope of life and resurrection and life in his presence for eternity. And in his ascension, he, we, now, we know that he now sits at the throne is our high priest and advocate, watching us, praying for us, advocating for us. And this means that when we are faced with, religi- with the religiously indignant, with religious hypocrites, we know that Jesus is the one standing on our side, that he is the one that will defend us, that he is the one fighting for us, that he is the one who will lift our gaze up and straighten out what has been bent, that our weary souls can be lifted by him and we can have true Sabbath rest in him. This is why what we read in Matthew chapter 11, as Jesus says, he's responding directly to the burdens of the religious elite and he says, come to me. All of you who, are, who labor are working and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's saying, come to me, all of you who are weighed down and bent in half, that if your spiritual condition showed, it would show the weight of burdens that have been placed on you by others around you. He's saying, come to me, and you'll, be, you'll find rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So we need to hear this morning that we can have rest. True rest in Jesus. That whatever it is for you, maybe you're bent in half, laid low with despair and depression, like the poor woman in this story. And you need to hear that Jesus can straighten you out, that he can bring healing, that he can stand you upright. He'll advocate for you and free you from the despair and lift your gaze so that you can see him more clearly. That if you're twisted and disfigured by guilt and shame, that the only way you're going to find freedom from that guilt and shame isn't to rely on greater rules. The rules that you try to impose will just twist you more severely. But that Jesus is the one who can untwist your soul who can free you from the the shame that you feel from what people have done to you, from the guilt that you carry for the things that you've done. He can free you, and if you are disfigured and twisted in your soul today, he can straighten you out and bring healing and freedom. That if you are expressionless and blank, disengaged from your very heart and soul, you've probably reached that point because of things that you've had to wall off from your past. It's been a defense mechanism for you to just disconnect. You need to hear that as you stare into the frightening and terrifying abyss, not knowing how deep it would go if you actually engage your own heart, that Jesus has gone to the depths of hell for you and that he will lift you up need to hear that if you're fractured, split into parts and pieces and you don't know how to bring things back to the whole, that Jesus is our only hope and that he can put you back together. He can bring the pieces together for you and bring wholeness and healing. And for some of you that are the walking dead, yes, even in this church, you need to hear that there is only one who can bring life from death. And the work that you're doing to try to bring bring healing and life for yourself is just going to drive you further into religious indignation as you can't quite reach the level of morality and holiness that you think is what's going to be the key. But Christ achieved it for you, and he can bring life through you. Wherever you are today, we need to hear that we can find true rest in Jesus. And then, understanding that, we'll be freed to respond like the woman and like the rest of the people around her. Because the woman doesn't, as she's healed and straightened up by Jesus, as, she, as Jesus lifts her gaze so that she can see him and see his face, what we see is that she doesn't then immediately say, no, I'm more comfortable <laughs> down here, and I'm just going to stay. Once she has seen the face and the gaze of Jesus, her response is to worship him, to glorify him. 
She's so filled with the joy of the presence of Jesus Christ that she can't help but to express it joyfully. We see this in the people that in the midst of the indignation of the, these religious leaders and the, and the most religious people that his adversaries here are put to shame in verse 17 and the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. And so as, as we are lifted, as we are healed, as we are untwisted and straightened out, as, we, as our eyes are lifted to just get a momentary glimpse of Jesus' face, the response within us should be an overflowing joy at the restedness that he gives us, at the healing that he brings us, so that we have to express it, so that we have to celebrate and listen, one of the biggest keys to, to, on our own heart assessment on whether we are falling more into religious indignation or healing from Jesus is to ask, are you able to celebrate the good things that you see God doing? Or do you feel the twinge immediately within you to say, yes, 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 but can you just respond with joy and worship to celebrate God's goodness, to celebrate the glorious things being done by him, to celebrate what's being done by him for us and for others, to rejoice at the good things that he has done and not, and not be cynical and questioning, but just to rejoice sometimes. This doesn't mean that life is all easy and that we just need to put a good face on things and, and pretend as if everything's well and good. You see, what Jesus frees us to, to do and to experience is that even as we head in to the depths of suffering and despair, it's in him that we have the confidence that one has gone before us. And that in the depths of suffering and despair, we can count on God's presence and his ability to bring healing in life. So Sojourn, this is my prayer for you this morning. that you'd experience the loving gaze of your Savior. That you would know and have confidence that he is the one who can straighten what is bent, who can bring relief from the crushing despair that you might experience, that can free you and declare your freedom, and that he's already accomplished the work so that we can rest in him. And so that even when we enter the darkest nights of despair, that we can rest and celebrate God's goodness in the midst of it. Knowing that Christ has paved the way. His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And so this morning as we engage God's word and see the activity of Jesus and the beauty of what Jesus has done, some of you need to hear his voice saying, woman, man, you're freed. You're freed from your pain. You're freed from your despair and disability. You're freed from the crushing weight that you bear. You're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High. Rest in that. Celebrate that. Lift your eyes so that you can get, catch a glimpse of Jesus' face so that he might lift your soul that you can celebrate God's goodness. Let's pray together.
Um, Father, would you move this morning? Would you bring healing and wholeness for us? Would you give us the ability and the freedom to rest, Lord Jesus, in your work that you did for us, that, that the way that you entered in with this woman has been given to us, that you have come in love for us, that you have come and freed us, that you have come and entered in with us, that we can experience your touch, the touch of your spirit today, that you can lift our gaze to be able to see you. Holy Spirit, would you move in this place and in our hearts today to bring confidence and assurance of these things. To convict us of our religious indignation. Our, the ways that we cling to our own preferences and rules and give us the freedom to celebrate your goodness and grace. So as we continue to worship, we, we love you, Lord God. Amen. As we continue, we get to celebrate communion together. It's the beauty of remembering that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. That, that his body being broken and blood being shed unite us with God, giving us freedom from our own sin. And it also unites his body, his church, with each other in unity because of what he's done. And so today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to celebrate communion, to share in the body and blood of Christ as a son or daughter invited to the king's table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then, then please don't partake in communion because this is a public proclamation of, of our unity with him. As we continue to worship, we remember that our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's continue to worship together.